0: You may be seated. And when you are and when you're comfortable, would you please open your copies of God's word to the book of Romans? We start a new chapter today. We're gonna be in chapter eight. We're gonna look at the first 11 verses of chapter eight. But I wanna start, if we can, we'll start a little bit back in chapter seven. We're gonna start our reading this morning at Romans chapter seven, verse 14. And then we'll read on through um, our sermon text as well. Just as a reminder, Romans 7. In Romans 7, we saw Paul start with that analogy of um, of us being uh, married to the law. And then he reminded us that when we died with Christ, we were no longer bound in that marriage. Just as on earth, when your husband or wife dies, you are then free to marry another. And he says, we are married to Christ. We belong to him. Uh, the law uh, is not over us. We do not belong to it in any way. We belong to Christ. And then he starts um, getting into uh, what it looks like uh, to follow the Lord. We'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. And then as he transitions into eight, he starts looking at the spirits, um, at the Holy Spirit in the life of believers. Oh, the Holy Spirit is mentioned about 20 times in Uh, Chapter 8. And so um, he starts turning uh, that way. With that introduction, we're going to begin reading. Again, Romans, we'll begin reading at Romans chapter 7, verse 14. And this is God's word. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And here ends the reading of God's word. Let's come to him in prayer and ask him for his help as we and meditate on this passage. Lord, we would bow before you uh, in humility. Lord, admitting to you that uh, we have sinned, we'd ask that you would forgive us. And we do pray, Lord, that you would help us. Uh, Lord, we'd ask that you would help us to think and to meditate on your word. It is not a man who we look upon or think about, but it is the word uh, preached that is on display. Oh Lord, would you help us to hear you? Would you give us ears to hear? Would you help our focus? And Lord, we do pray that you would um, help us to think along with you uh, about our lives. Lord, we pray that you would show each one of us how this word of yours applies to us. Lord, we'd ask that you would do a work in our hearts and in our lives. We'd ask it in Jesus' name and for his glory's sake. Amen. Uh, There are several nonprofit organizations out there uh, that help people by completely remodeling their homes. And just this week, I um, was searching uh, for these kind, and I came across one that accomplishes two goals at once they rally young people uh, in order to do the construction. And this teaches young people how uh, to do things, um, like how, how to have a skill, the kind of skill that you need, whether it's painting or, or cutting or laying tile or whatever it is. And it also teaches young people how to uh, come, al- come alongside people and help people in need. And at the same time, um, It helps, this organization, it helps struggling veterans. They help veterans who are living in houses that are on the brink of being condemned by providing them with beautifully restored homes. Uh, This nonprofit brings positive change both to the lives of young people and uh, veterans in need. It's a a pretty good idea. And you should see um, how grateful these veterans are, of course, uh, they show you as um, they keep the work away from them and then they bring them in the home when it's all done and, and film their reaction as they're walking from uh, room to room and you often see uh, their eyes swell up and tears running down their face as they marvel at um, you know the molding up there and all the painting, everything just looking uh, spotless. The houses were oftentimes just so bad And they look so uh, good when they're done. And these veterans are astonished at the transformation. They can't believe the difference. They can't believe the change. And we see something similar in our text. A complete transformation that takes place in the lives of believers. Who you were before Christ. And who you are after your conversion that work that we see the Holy Spirit doing in our lives. Um, A complete transformation takes place in the lives of believers. For instance, if you look at verses 5 and 6, you see that believers experience a transformation in their mindset. And um, they they move from having worldly desires to spiritual desires. Priorities. So as we look at this text, we're going to ask a question. We're going to ask, why should believers express gratitude for God's transforming work in their lives? And you'll learn that believers should express gratitude for the work of God in their lives because he brings freedom from condemnation, renewal of mind, and empowerment for a transformed life in Christ. And we'll begin to consider... Our text under our first heading, Freed from Condemnation. That's our first heading, Freed from Condemnation. In the preceding chapters, particularly in chapters 6 and 7, Paul discusses the concepts of sin and the law and the struggle between the flesh and the spirit. He addresses the tension between wanting to obey God's law, but being unable to do so because of the sinful nature. And he uses his own experience to highlight the struggle. In chapter sin, we see that Paul zooms in on the internal struggle struggle of a believer who loves God with all his heart, but who is fighting with temptation and sin. And then in chapter 8, he zooms out. He zooms out so that believers can see themselves as God sees them. So that uh, they can see and understand what's going on in this work of transformation that's happening in their lives. Chapter 7 is like being in the midst of construction, in the midst of the banging and the sawing and the hammering. Uh, that's going on as a home is restored. But in chapter eight, we step back and we begin to see the plans for the remodel. In verse one, Paul writes, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And therefore reaches back to the previous discussion in chapter seven. Paul said, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death?" And you remember his answer. "Who's his deliverer? Who deserves his thanks?" Paul answers, "Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus, our Lord." The guy have no power. Paul points to that. How helpless and powerless he feels. There's only one solution. There's one person that brings strength delivers from sin, not only ultimately, but even provides the power as we grow in sanctification, and that is Christ. Because of Christ, there is now no condemnation. Because we've been justified through faith in Christ, we don't fear judgment. We don't fear judgment of guilt or punishment for wrongdoing. For those who belong to Christ, there is no longer a sentence of guilt and punishment hanging over you. And that's because Jesus' sacrifice has taken away your guilt. You have been declared not guilty before God's judgment. And believer, if you are like me, you need to remind yourself of that verdict You need to remind yourself, if you're like me, you need to remind yourself of that verdict often. I mean, I don't know how often it is for you, but it is so often for me when Satan tries to trouble you about your past. Hold on to Romans 8.1. Think about your identity in Christ. Focus on the fact that there is absolutely no condemnation. None. If Satan brings up your past, remind him of Jesus' past. You're free from condemnation because Christ took your place, bearing your judgment on the cross. Like the sins that you feel guilty about, they were judged. They were, Christ took that judgment. In verse 2, we find the reason for Your freedom, Paul writes, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. In this context, law means principle, right? um, This is a true principle. That's what he means by law. You were once under the old principle of sin and death, but now the new principle of life in Christ has surpassed it you are now free. The old principle highlighted your sin, fueled your sin, and led to condemnation. The new principle sets you free. The phrase, the law of the spirit of life, in verse 2 refers to the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers. The spirit applies the work of Christ to the hearts of believers. Christ's sacrifice on the cross paid the price for sin and secured forgiveness with God. And the Spirit's role is to bring the benefits of Christ's work to the lives of believers. Through the work of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, believers are set free from the penalty of sin and its ruling powers. And Paul explains how in verses 3 and 4 when he writes, Commandments and requirements couldn't provide a way for people to perfectly fulfill it due to human weakness, due to our depravity. That's why God sent his son. Uh, You'll see that the text says Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh. The word likeness is Paul's way of avoiding saying that God sent Jesus in sinful flesh, Jesus came and permanently took to himself a sinless human nature, both body and soul. He lived a perfect and sinless life, and by his sacrificial death on the cross, he took upon himself the consequences of sin, satisfying the demands of the law for justice. By doing so, he condemned law In the flesh, Jesus dealt a decisive blow to sin's power and he broke its dominion. And that's because of what Paul says that believers walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Believers are enabled and empowered to serve the Lord. The spirit transforms your heart and empowers you to pursue righteousness Walking according to the Spirit means living in alignment with the guidance and the influence of the Holy Spirit. It involves making choices that reflect the values and the teachings and the priorities of God's kingdom. We have a transformed perspective and a new ability to walk with the Lord. Walking according to the Spirit involves seeking God's guidance, relying on his strength, and making choices that honor him and reflect his character. It's a life characterized by obedience and love for the Lord and a growing relationship with him. Believers have true freedom in Christ We no longer have to live in that old, self-centered way according to the flesh. Because of Christ, we can live in a new way, renewed by the Spirit. That's our second heading, renewed by the Spirit. I inherited a, a mahogany dresser, an old mahogany dresser from my grandmother. But I didn't inherit it uh, directly. My mother and father inherited uh, the dresser, and eventually it came to me. And by the time it came to me, it was in pretty bad shape. It had been uh, stored over the years in questionable places. Um, it had been, it had re- at times, it had been exposed to the weather. And so by the time I got it, uh, the wood was pulling apart. The finish um, was was very uh, worn out. A lot of the rails were broken. So the doors, uh, the drawers were all crooked. Knobs um, were missing, and so forth. But at the time, I worked with a man um, who whose father owned a furniture manufacturing company, and so as a child, he grew up. Um, with his father owning this company, he grew up uh, making furniture. And so uh, the two of us, mostly him, I did a lot of buying the supplies, getting what he needed. I did some sanding. Uh, But the two of us worked on this dresser. Um, We got it back together. And you should have seen this thing um, at the end. It was beautiful. It was restored like brand new. We fixed all of the rails so it All the drawers slid well, replaced all the knobs. We restained it. We um, even hit it with two coats of gloss. It was absolutely um, beautiful. The transformation was amazing. Uh, This dresser was renewed. And again, I think we see something like that in our text. We see transformation, we see renewal. And Paul begins to make a contrast between the flesh and the spirit. Draw your attention to verse 5. Paul writes, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. Paul says that the flesh brings death, but the spirit brings life. When Paul uses the word flesh, of course he's not referring to the muscles and the skin that's on top of our skeletons. He's referring to uh, our corrupt and unredeemed nature, that, that old nature, the old fallen, sin-dominated self. Here, Paul is distinguishing between two types of people. There are ultimately only two types of people in the world. Verse eight and nine make it clear that the contrast between flesh and spirit highlights the difference between Christians and non-Christians in terms of their nature. When a person becomes a Christian, they experience transformation, supernatural transformation They're transferred from a realm dominated by their old sinful nature into a realm dominated by the Spirit. They're born again. They're regenerated. The Holy Spirit renews their minds. Our mindset undergoes a shift. Instead of primarily focusing on selfish desires and worldly pursuits, our new attitude is oriented toward seeking God's will. Our focus changes. Our focus changes. Rather than being centered on temporal or earthly matters, our orientation shifts towards eternal values and deepening our relationship with God. The inclination of our minds changes. While the old nature had been predisposed, I got stuck. I could do it. (laughs) Our old nature had a predisposition towards sin and self-gratification. Thank you very much. Our renewed mind is inclined toward pleasing God. You see, God changes something in us. There's a real change we can point to. We experience a transformation in our thought patterns too our thinking becomes more aligned with biblical truth. We start to see things from God's perspective, and this leads to making decisions based on God's word rather than worldly influences. But where does the motivation come from? Because right? we talk when we're talking this way, we're talking about a lot of the way It's supposed to be. But we've seen that there's a struggle too, haven't we, in chapter seven? Where's the motivation come from in all of this? It springs from a heart and a mind that has also been changed, it's been transformed by the Spirit. Our affections, or what we love and cherish, changes. While our old nature loved worldly pleasures, the renewed heart and mind directs our affections toward God and his word, toward his people and toward his purposes. The renewed mind is in a continual process, right? This is a continual a process, this, the mind being renewed. But you can fuel it You can encourage it by actively engaging in God's Word. Read it. We talk about quiet time, right? Just time simple, being alone, reading the Word, not in a hurry, finding time to be able to meditate on it, think about it, maybe study it. You might not know how to do it. That's a great opportunity to ask someone older than you in Christ How do you study the Word? What am I supposed to study? How do I know um, what to study? But sitting under the word, reading the word, meditating on the word, memorizing the word, that's, that's storing um, the word in your heart, uh, sitting under the preached word of God, that, that fuels it too. Coming to Sunday school. Um, Coming to the word preached, not only in the morning, but coming to the evening services as well. And of course, pray and fellowship with other believers. Surround yourself with people who are on fire for the Lord, people who um, are putting the kingdom of God first, being around someone who is absolutely in love with the Lord is contagious. Surround yourself with those kinds of people. The Spirit works through these things. Even though we fall at times, the Christian's basic orientation and affections are for the things of the Spirit. And Paul continues to contrast the two spiritual states of people in verses six through eight. He says, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. In other words, a mindset has eternal consequences. When someone's mind is set on the flesh, they prioritize and pursue the desires and values of their sinful nature. And this leads to spiritual death a state of separation from God and a life dominated by sin's consequences. But when someone is born again, they set their mind on the Spirit and they focus on the Spirit's guidance and values and priorities that come from the Holy Spirit's influence. And this leads to life and peace. It leads to a life marked by spiritual vitality, communion with God, and inner peace that transcends circumstances. In verses 7 and 8, you see that Paul says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. When Paul says that believers are hostile to God, he's not necessarily saying that they are visibly angry or that they're sweating and red with their veins all bulging out. What he's saying is they're disinterested in God. They're not interested in his name. They don't care about his kingdom or his word or his people. You notice that Paul doesn't give a list of sins here. Instead, he speaks more about the attitude of their heart toward God and his word. He says that the mind, their mind, is set on the flesh, and that they cannot submit to God's law. Apart from the work of the Spirit, individuals are unable to willingly and genuinely submit to God's law and please Him. The word cannot signifies the inherent inability of the unregenerate human nature to align with God's standards and purposes without the intervention of God's grace and regenerating work of the Spirit. They're dead in sin. They, they don't have the ability. Not only do they not have the ability, they don't care, anyways. So, unless God comes and intervenes, sovereignly comes and intervenes, that's what it takes. That's what it takes. And this leads to our third heading empowered for life. Empowered for life. Some of you are aware that I own a classic uh, Corvette from the 70s, which um, you've never seen it, right? You've heard about it. You've heard about the legend of it, but you've never seen it. It's a beautiful car, I promise. But in recent years, it's spent more time covered in the garage than it has on the road. And that's because I have a power steering um, leak that I cannot fix. And believe me, I've thrown a lot of money at trying to fix it. I keep trying to fix it, but the leak persists. I think I'm going to leave it alone. I got a power steering problem in this old car. Now, if you've ever had uh, the power steering in your car go out, um, you know how difficult it is to steer once that power steering goes out. It's it's practically impossible. You can grip the wheel with both hands and and tug uh, with all your might, and you're going to have to. You're going to wish you were a bodybuilder at that point because it is nearly impossible to uh, turn the wheel. But when the power steering is working, you can turn the wheel uh, with, like, one finger. You can steer. You can drive. You have the ability to navigate where you want to go. And again, we see something Similar in the text, without the spirit of God, humanity is unable to submit to God. But with his power, we have the ability to believe and follow Christ. In verse 9, Paul tells believers, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. When a person is a follower of Christ, the Holy Spirit comes and resides within them permanently. And this indwelling is transformative. Again, it's, it's empowering. And that makes sense, right? We're talking about the third person of the Trinity coming and living within you, taking up residence in your heart, And you might have noticed that Paul in this verse uses the term Spirit of God and Spirit of Christ in verse 9. And these terms are often used interchangeably in the New Testament, both referring to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is both the Spirit of God the Father and the Spirit of Christ the Son. And Paul says that the Spirit... Indwells believers. We've talked about how powerful that is, but we can still quench the spirit's work in our lives at times. And Paul mentions that in First Thessalonians 5:19. Quenching the Spirit refers to suppressing or hindering the Spirit's guidance in our lives through disobedience unbelief, or yielding to sinful desires. It's a metaphorical expression about stifling the spirit's activity, much like one puts out a fire. You know how to do that. Starve it from oxygen, right? We might say we starve ourselves of the word or um, the means of grace, attending church, not reading the word, not praying. These are all ways to stifle the fire. You suffocate it, right? Don't provide it what it needs. In Ephesians 4.30, it says that sometimes we grieve the Holy Spirit as well. We can grieve the Spirit through disobedience and ungodly actions that are contrary to God's will. Sin grieves the Holy Spirit. Christians have a real, a real and living relationship with God. Grieving the Spirit highlights the reality that our actions and attitude affect our relationship with God. We can grieve him. When we choose sin or neglect our spiritual growth, it grieves the Spirit who desires to lead us into godliness, and into closer communion with God. We should honor the Spirit's presence. We should heed his guidance and live in a way that reflects the character of Christ. The Spirit's presence ensures that we will be manifesting the fruit of the Spirit. You should see and experience his presence in the life of believers and vice versa. In verse 10, Paul declares, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Paul's statement, but if Christ is in you, refers to the indwelling presence of Christ through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's presence within believers signifies our union with Christ and our participation in his righteousness. And notice the phrase, the spirit is life because of righteousness. This is pointing to the fact that the spirit imparts spiritual life to believers because of the righteousness that comes through Christ. This righteousness is credited to us by faith. Paul talked so much about this in the earlier Chapters of Romans, didn't he? And the presence of the Spirit confirms our position as children of God and it guarantees us eternal life. The Spirit's indwelling not only transforms our life here and now, but it also serves as a promise and seal of our future inheritance in Christ. It assures us of our eternal security and the fulfillment of God's promises. In our lives, in verse 11, Paul says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Paul highlights the spirit's role in the future resurrection of believers' bodies. He draws a parallel between the Spirit's power that raised Jesus from the dead and the Spirit's work in the lives of believers. The presence of the Holy Spirit within believers serves as a guarantee and assurance that just as God raised Jesus from the dead, he will also raise the bodies of believers to new life. Paul's statement Underscores the life giving work of the Spirit. The same Spirit who brought about the resurrection of Jesus will also bring about the resurrection of our bodies. It's a promise. The indwelling Spirit is a pledge of future resurrection and glorification. This verse highlights the continuity between the Spirit's work in our lives now and his role in our ultimate transformation in the future. It assures us that not only are we transformed spiritually by the Spirit's presence, but our physical bodies will experience resurrection and renewal through the Spirit's power. Believers experience the Spirit's transformative work in their lives, both in the present through the, his indwelling and guidance, and in the future, through a promise of bodily resurrection. We've been reminded today, we've been reminded of the incredible work that God accomplishes in the lives of believers through the Holy Spirit. Just as a dilapidated house is renovated into a beautiful home, Believers experience a remarkable renewal that can only be attributed to the Spirit's work. We've seen how believers are freed from condemnation through the atoning work of Christ. The burden of guilt and condemnation has been lifted and we stand before God justified and forgiven. Additionally, we've delved into the renewal of the mind by the Spirit. Our thought patterns, affections, and priorities are transformed by the Spirit's influence. Our mindset shifts from self-centered desires to a focus on pleasing God and living according to His Word. This renewal empowers us to live in a way that reflects our new identity in Christ. And we've explored the concept of being empowered for life through the indwelling Spirit. The Spirit's presence within us equips us to navigate life's challenges. His indwelling is a guarantee of our eternal life and a promise of our future resurrection. We should be grateful for the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, just as the veterans who were astonished and moved by the transformation of their homes, we should be moved by the ongoing transformation that the Spirit is accomplishing within us. Believer, walk daily in the reality of your freedom from condemnation, your renewal by the Spirit, and your empowerment for life in Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we do ask that you would empower us. Lord, we have talked about two natures here today. We talked about the nature of the unbeliever and the nature of the believer, and we have talked about how salvation is a monogistic thing. Uh, It is a sovereign thing. Lord, you save. We do pray that if there is anyone who is an unbeliever um, who is not born again, that Lord, you would sovereignly intercede just like you did with Paul on the road to Damascus. Lord, we pray that you would come in and illuminate them, that you would give them eyes to see, that you would do a transforming work in their lives. And Lord, for those of us who have committed to picking up our cross daily and following you, Lord, we'd ask that you'd forgive us. You know the ways, the many ways we demonstrate our brokenness um, daily. And we do ask, oh Lord, that you would fill us with your power. Lord, we do pray that you would continue to stir our affections, that you would change, that you would give us a desire for you, uh, that you would renew our minds, um, that you would help us to hate sin and to love you and to love your word, to love your people to follow after you, Lord Jesus, all our lives. Lord, empower us, set us on fire for your glory's sake, Lord, that your name might be praised. We'd ask you to hear our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.